Hello, Blogging Heads Nation, and welcome to the latest uh, issue of Dresbert. I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and I also uh, write the spoiler alerts column for the Washington Post. And I'm Heather Hurlbert, and I run the New Models of Policy Change program at New America. And uh, viewers, I can't see it for myself, but rumor has it that Professor Dresner is tan. Also, that he may be a little sleepy during this video, so please feel free to yell at your screen to wake him up. Uh, these rumors are correct, uh, I should fully disclose. I have been on a cruise in the Mediterranean for the last uh, 10 days or so, celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, uh, which was lovely. Um, although a little bit hot, it didn't get below 90 degrees uh, the entire time I was there. Um, and, you know, we went from Barcelona to Rome, stopping in all these various French and Italian ports. Uh, I got to see where Napoleon stayed uh, in Elba and Portofereo. Uh, so a little bit of, of uh, history there. What there was not a lot of on this cruise ship, however, was information. I'm beginning to think that cruise ships might be the last sort of enclosed information bubble um, in the developed world. In the sense that uh, while there was Wi-Fi access on the ship, the Wi-Fi access was ridiculously expensive in the form of, like, 60 bucks for what would for me have been like a standard half hour's worth of usage so uh, i barely got on the net um and in fact most of my information came from uh a very uh, barren information diet which consisted of these uh, sort of stapled news summaries that the uh that the cruise ship would uh create from both england from both uk and american sources as well as a stapled uh, shorthand version of the New York Times. So as a result, I am at a severe information disadvantage uh, compared to Heather over what's happened over the last two weeks. I have to say a lot of what's happened over the last two weeks, you would be much happier if you did not know. Um, it hasn't been it hasn't been an enlightening um, or, or uplifting two weeks in, in American news. Um, but I'm struck actually by the idea that while you were sailing the Mediterranean in your news bubble, you had less access to information than the um, many Africans who were using their cell phones to consume the news of Barack Obama's second visit to the continent. <laughs> That's true. Um, uh, although I will say that uh, Obama's visit to Africa did get uh, most did get a fair amount of play in the uh, news summaries that I saw. Um, but yes, the, the, there was something very amusing about the fact that basically people would go on shore and occasionally search for a Wi-Fi signal so they could then, you know, get free access to the Internet. Um, but, you know, when you did that, you were mostly trying to catch up on email or what have you. Uh, news was sort of lower on the, on the priority list for most. All right. So, Dresner, I gave you the cue to shift to talking about the Obama trip to Africa and you didn't take it. So now totally I'm going to try you again. And I'm going to say, so while you were in the Mediterranean, president goes to Africa, valedictory trip, goes to Kenya, um, you know, tours Kenya with his half sister, uh, goes to Ethiopia, um, starts off a firestorm of debate for things he says about the state of Ethiopian democracy or non-democracy which frankly I think has the beneficial effect of getting Americans to know, number one, that there are some issues with government in Ethiopia, and number two, that Ethiopia is a sort of is now considered a central player in fighting Islamic terrorism in its in its African variant. <laughs> Heather, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because well, I, I agree with you that those things are probably true. I, I think you're you gotta lower the bar a little bit. I think the virtue of, of Obama's uh, comments on Ethiopia is that it told Americans Americans that there is a country called Ethiopia. 
Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I was really struck by, well, I was struck by two things in watching the commentary of, of the trip on Twitter. Uh, the first being how profoundly grateful I was that there was no Twitter when I was a speechwriter um, accompanying, <laughs> accompanying um, principals on this kind of trip. Um, because yeah. one of one of my favorites was when, well, first of all, I guess someone was critical that, gosh, um, why weren't Ethiopians tweeting? And, you know, so Are that you was serious. Yes. Yeah, so that was a great teachable moment to explain okay. that. um that online penetration in Ethiopia is less than 10%. Uh, and also that the government censors media pretty heavily there. So, hey, guess what? Twitter, not a thing in Ethiopia. Yeah. Now, again, cell phones, text messaging, a huge thing in Ethiopia. So you, you have to sort of push back on the idea that, um, that it's backward in some way. It's just right. technologically different. Mm-hmm. But it's a more nuanced. It's a much more nuanced picture than the simple notion of it, the, the fact is, is that they don't rely on the same forms of social media that uh, we in the United States do. Um, so, I mean, I'm curious what the the only the only coverage I've seen. I mean, I saw two strands of coverage on Obama's Africa trip, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. The the sort of mainstream media coverage was along. The, the basic theme was. Obama trying to sound different tone with respect to Africa than, let's say, China did. That that the the sort of the 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 hidden message that Obama was trying to say is that maybe you know while it is good that you are getting lots of Chinese investment, you might want to think a little bit about the implications of some of these investments, and that over the long term. Uh, there are durable, attractive qualities about, let's say, the American democratic mode of governance. Um, and then the other thing, which is a little softer that I've, I've read, at least, and this comes on the sort of Africanist Twitter people that I follow, is essentially um, frustration at the notion that Obama's rhetoric really wasn't all that different from the rhetoric that you would have heard uh, from previous presidents for, you know, uh, the last decade or two. Yeah, I think the the strand that I would add to the two you've mentioned is that Obama was really trying very hard to find a way to not just make some subtle comments about the Chinese, but to make some subtle comments about democracy and governance right. in the region. And that, you know, there was the effort to walk this line with respect to the Ethiopian regime, which is really not a very nice regime, with respect to the Kenyan regime, which also has um, some pretty serious severe, problems, yeah. some pretty severe drawbacks. And, you know, there was a lot of back and forth about sort of whether he walked the line. Actually, no. What am I saying? No one, <coughs> no one who cared to comment on it thought that he had walked the line the way they thought he should have walked it. But <laughs> again, you know, my feeling was just to be having that conversation and to be putting out in public fora that that these issues are very big and real. You know, because the bar with American discourse with respect to Africa is so low, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and that you know kind of brings me to your to your second point about the the Africanist frustration. I I have to say I read a piece um, by Howard French, right. who, used, who used to be at the New York Times, um, yeah. and it was a critique. And on the one hand, I read it and I thought, you know, he has some good points here. And on the other hand, I thought. You know, Howard was making exactly the same this critique 15 years ago too. And so uh-huh. if 
if the policy and the reality has moved on, quite possibly the critique should have moved on too. And I thought the element that was completely missing from his from the critique was the problem of how do you talk to African audiences where they are and American audiences where they are at the same time? Right. And, you know, if if Howard French thinks that American political, the American po political establishment is kind of woefully backward about Africa, as he surely knows, the folks who don't do Africa for a living are, you know, way, way, way more backward. So you kind of fall into using languages and rhetorical structures that that you think your audience will get. And, you know, the barrel on that for Africa is very, very, very thin. Um, so you do end up going back to some familiar sounding language. Um, I was struck, though, um, I haven't read, this is a, a confession. This is the part of this blogging heads that's going to get gift. I haven't read all of Dreams of My Father. Um you're supposed to make a shocked guess. Oh, I made a shocked face. Trust me, that's going to be an awesome <laughs> gift. Um, and that, you know, on the one hand, there were stories that were, that were used from Dreams of My Father, but mm -hmm. that none of the rhetoric I saw kind of captured the tone. And that just made mm -hmm. me think a lot about, you know, what it's like to be president for eight years and, and how <laughs> much the pressure of, of, governance and all the things you have to cram into your 22 minutes of remarks and all the things that you can't get in trouble for saying because you won't have a shot at explaining them afterwards, you know, get in the way of a more open and reflective tone that might actually have sounded more different from what we're used to in, in rhetoric toward Africa. Okay, but wouldn't, can I ask you a question on that though? I mean, wouldn't this be the exact moment when you would have expected Obama to be reflective? I mean, to, to use the R-rated language, I believe we're in the phase of the presidency where this president has zero fucks to give um, in the sense of he's passed the midterms. He obviously does, you know, he doesn't want to deep six the Democratic Party's chances for 2016 or anything. But, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the last, you know, basically since November about how, you know, this the current iteration of Obama feels less constrained um by electoral pressures and that he can, you know, speak to some of these things. The very fact that, you know, for example, he pushed on on the gay rights agenda before coming to Kenya would be one example of that. So wouldn't it have been possible for him to have been more reflective? Well, you know, I'm actually I'm going to push back on your on your R-rated notion. And that will also um, I'm going to you've got another opportunity to make a transition here, Dresner. Don't screw it up. Um, because the, this president on international affairs right now, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to use this metaphor, but, um, everything you see coming out of the white house is that, that the president cares about the Iran deal as he may not have cared about anything since healthcare. Right. So right. Yes. I assume it, you're, yeah. um, you know, given that even at the end of a presidency, there's only so much time they will let you have for foreign affairs and even something that's as personally passionate to you versus this thing which you see as your signature. And I'll also say it took the president a lot of years of talking on on black issues in the U.S. to feel as loosened up and comfortable as he does now. Yes, and he true. hasn't, you know, he hasn't gotten the opportunity again because, you know, time is the one thing you can't buy more of. Um to get past the place which I think he occupied for you know his whole professional life of 
I am very obviously a man of African descent, and so I need to not go around talking about Africa a lot because white people will mark me down for it. And if he had another term, I would imagine that he would wind up on Africa in a form of discourse like the place he's come to on race relations, but, you know, he doesn't get another term. Well, I will close this out by noting that we actually might be in an interesting period come 2017, because in that sense, we will have three ex-presidents, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, all of whom, as I understand it, are pretty personally popular in Africa for a variety of different reasons. So that might actually, it'll be interesting to see if these sort of ex-presidents will be in a better place to, to sort of talk about this issue. But you bring up the Iran deal. And so I was thinking maybe we should pivot to that. Well, you do. You actually, Dresner, give me a, a clever idea for the next president, whomever she or he may be, which is you have these three ex-presidents and you should do the thing that this president didn't do, which is to mm-hmm. sort of give each of them a region of the world and say, go there and use your personal popularity to help us fix things. That would be interesting. I'm not sure. Yeah. 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 Well, the one that I would assign the Middle East to is Bill Clinton, not so much because of of Iran, but because of his continuing high level of personal popularity in Israel. Um, But so this this past week, we've had um, the the rhetorical level on the Iran deal has been has been ratcheted up, you know, several more notches. Um, You had, um, you know, the, the main reason that you should be happy that you were on a boat in a news bubble was that um, on on one of the more sacred fast days in the Jewish calendar, Mike Huckabee delivered himself of the view that um, Barack Obama is leading the Jewish people to the door of the ovens and then doubled down. I mean, and this, you know, goes back to your point about Obama not having any fucks left to give. When Obama came out and said, you know, that would be ridiculous if it weren't sad, um, Huckabee then doubled down on it. And, you know, what is... Fascinating. I mean, so first of all, you sort of you have to feel sorry for for Huckabee and all those guys because you can't compete with Trump. So you yeah. have to say just even more ridiculous than ridiculous things. No, my, my understanding is this was the one comment by a non-Trump candidate that actually kind of made it to the top of the, the press food chain while I was gone. Yes, that is that is true. That is the and the, um you know, the in the sort of inside the Beltway world, there were a couple of pieces saying, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm expanding the Beltway to include New York for this. But there were a couple of pieces saying, you know, Rand Paul is done. Rand Paul is tanking. Um, so but that so if you were sort of in the cognoscenti, you noticed that. But but otherwise, so, you know, this is an, an interesting instance where I mean, this is God awful. It probably doesn't have any effect on anything except that insofar as you have this climate in Israel, which um, can maybe best be. Yes. So yesterday you had six people stabbed um, by an ultra Orthodox Jew at a gay pride parade. Uh, And you had um, a Palestinian family firebombed in their home on the West Bank and their baby killed. Um, And so now you have this very interesting sort of rhetorical fight within Israel where president of Israel, not known for being sort of a squishy leftist, you know, came out this morning and called this an act of terror, the, the firebombing of the family and said, we can't let terror win, which is a very interesting choice huh. to, to, but, but it's as the rhetoric, you know, so you have your, so as the American right for its own purposes kind of amps up the rhetoric, the question I have is, is what's that doing to empower 
the, you know, there's, there's a very real fight over this in Israel. And, and when your allies are using phrases like, you know, march to the ovens, um, that's not helping the forces of reason and moderation in Israel get control of their own right wing, which, mind you, they whipped up themselves. But well, you know. I mean, you can you can argue the right wing is done in the United States as well. First of all, to be fair, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Israeli government um, and the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. did kind of condemn Huckabee's remarks. Am I right in that assessment? Yes. I mean, but I think kind of condemned, you know, sort of say weren't helpful, um, you know, and I think but but you can the, the trouble is how condemning the remarks of forces with whom one is closely associated is and you know again after Huckabee doubled down on it it, it got to be a little difficult because you know he didn't care that his Israel, Israeli allies condemned it I mean which again is understandable because it's entirely for domestic political consumption right I mean I guess I would have two questions on this the first is, is whether you think statements like that do statements like that you know they might be self-defeating or, or they might you know prompt the natural reaction that that will happen inside the beltway but by making a statement that outrageous, does it expand the rhetorical playing field, allowing for someone to make a slightly less outrageous statement that is somehow seen as nevertheless inside the bounds at this point that wouldn't have been seen as inside the bounds before? Um, and well, I'll ask, I'll leave it with that and then ask you another question. No, I mean, I actually think there's a very concrete way that the bounds are being problematically expanded all the time, which is that. For better and for worse, it used to be if you said something like that or some of the things that Trump has been saying to expand yeah. this from just being about about Israel for a moment, you, you wouldn't get covered anymore. Right. Um, you know, the treatment that these guys are getting is very different from the treatment that David Duke got. Remember him? Yeah. All right. But hold on. I'm not sure that's quite correct. I think they would have gotten the coverage. The the difference might be, in my opinion, not so much the coverage, but the response by the candidates to when establishment voices say you've gone too far. So think about, for example, when McCain, you know, or, I'm sorry, not McCain, when Trump went over the line on McCain, um, you know, you saw an immediate weigh in from just about everyone saying, look, you, you, you just can't say that. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, in both cases, Trump and Huckabee, they said, no, I can totally say it. I, I, you know, the, the, they, they basically are. are doubling down on that kind of, of rhetoric. Um, and so in that sense, what's what what has eroded perhaps are what we might think of as sort of the informal norms of discourse, where even if you disagree with, let's say, John McCain's, you know, if you're a Republican, you disagree with John McCain's um, politics or his willingness to compromise or what have you, you don't blast his war record because that's just ridiculously offensive and rude. Um, nowadays, apparently, that's totally a legit move. And similarly, if in the case of Huckabee, you know, even if you disagree with the Iran deal, you don't invoke the Holocaust um, because that's, you know, you're, you've, you've gone way past Godwin's law when you do that. Except as it turns out in Huckabee's case, he that's his go-to rhetorical move, apparently, for just about every threat confronting the Middle East. So um, he has no problems doing that, as, as Andrew Kaczynski, I think, pointed out on BuzzFeed. Um, so I, I think what's different, perhaps, is that these candidates don't feel like they suffer a penalty if they piss off the political establishment. Right. I mean, Huckabee gets invited on the morning shows to discuss this, which is in a way, yeah. I mean, it's kind of the reputation of, of Godwin's law. And I just 
I do sort of have to make the point here that as much as as much as what Trump said about John McCain's war record was offensive, um, it's been treated as if it were more offensive than either one sort of making blithe comparisons to the genocide of, of 7 million people or calling, you know, an entire continent's worth of people rapists and murderers, which is what Trump did. Yeah. And, you know, again, as much as I have enormous respect for John McCain and what he went through, um, insulting one person versus insulting entire races of or ethnicities of people, you know, like which one, which one. By Heather, I don't know what you're talking about. Donald Trump is very popular with the Latino community. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. So. <laughs> So, but in all seriousness, I think the the last thing that we should that we should say on the Iran debate is Congress left town this week. Not that you mm -hmm. would have noticed. Um, and you know, interestingly, Congress leaves town with a steady trickle of Democrats continuing to come out and say they will support Obama on the Iran deal. And steadily, have any have any Democrats actually? I think I think I got an email from one Demo like one Democratic representative said they were voting against. I mean, if, has there been more than that, or I'm just curious. Um, I can't think of more than one who've said for sure they're voting against it, but what, what you have, which is, um, frustrating, but also kind of interestingly self-defeating is you, you do have a, a bunch of sort of more centrist members or members who are more concerned about the role of APAC in their districts who have said, you know, I'm taking my time. I'm going to study this, you know, which, right which I would respect a lot more if I thought that meant they were going home with a yellow highlighter to read the, the text of the agreement over the break. But the funny thing about this is it actually lays you open to more pressure and more, you know, both sides frantically planning to send people to your town halls and more. I was going to say, more. yeah, I'm assuming that's what's coming next. Yeah. And, you know, so there's been a lot of sort of interesting discussion about how, depending on who you believe, APAC has said they're either going to spend 20 million or 40 million dollars in districts during the recess. And, you know, as someone with a little bit of experience spending money in districts during recess, it's going to be very interesting to me to see how they manage to spend that much money. Um, and Wouldn't they you know, do it by TV ads? Um, I suppose. I mean, I, I guess if you buy TV ads in the New York media market, you can spend $20 million pretty fast. But um, so, yeah, I guess that's what they're going to do. But, um, you know, it'll be it'll be a really interesting, interesting month um, because you do have, you know, a kind of campaign that, frankly, we're not used to seeing in the on the international diplomacy side where, you know, you have. You have somebody going out there, frankly, as if the Iran deal were a pharmaceutical product or some other thing <laughs> that we're used to seeing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just imagining. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm having a boy moment. I'm just imagining someone trying to market the Iran deal the same way they market that Via uh, Viagra. In the event of a nuclear breakout lasting <laughs> over three hours, contact your physician immediately. <laughs> Actually, oh, they could totally now. Now, see, you've got me going to Dresner just to prove that I can I can have the same kind of teenage trashy mind that you do. The throwing go. the football through the tire swing. Oh, that's good. That's I think good. we could. I think we could. Yeah. Um, so, whoever's making the APEC ads, you need to watch this blogging heads and check out some of our ideas. And um, mm -hmm. you know, blogging heads, the institution. We would we would not accept royalty checks. 
but we would be happy to donate royalty checks to blogging heads of the institution. But let, all right, so let me step back for a second, Heather, and ask you a, a profoundly political science question, uh, which is, does anything that's going to happen over the next month with respect to the Iran deal actually matter in the following sense? My understanding is that from the moment the interim deal was signed or the framework agreement was, was signed or from the, the I'm sorry, the negotiation over uh, congressional review of this, I think immediately after that, Pelosi put out a, a letter signed by a sufficient number of House Democrats such that there is no even if the majorities of both the House and Senate vote against the deal, we know what will happen. Obama will veto and there will be an insufficient number of um, votes in the House to override the veto. Ergo, the agreement will go through. Now, so I guess my question is, does any of this matter beyond the, the, the small matter of optics in terms of the depth of the majority that will oppose this deal? So I'm really glad you asked that because this is a sort of a question of political science meets reality that I've been struggling with in a lot of contexts recently. And I agree with your analysis that okay. um, it is a genuine question. I'm not trying no, to no, say no. that it, none of yeah. this matters. So, so it has been the relative balance of power has been demonstrated and the sort of overwhelming, well, not overwhelming, but the balance of geopolitical arguments and crass local political arguments has been demonstrated, to, including, by the way, an assessment among you know, what remains of the brains of the Republican Party, that they're actually better off if the thing passes and they can run against it. And right. then, and then, by the way, should they get the presidency, be able to come into office and enjoy it rather than having to deal with the, the, the problem of not having a deal and having, as would inevitably happen, the, the sanctions regime in tatters. And remind me that I want to come back and pose to you a very interesting economic argument about whether ditching the deal and basically encouraging China in particular, but also India to go totally around our sanctions, our national sanctions regime would actually have the effect of hastening the flight away from the dollar as a reserve currency. So just ah, okay. bracket, bracket that for a second. Um, so, so, okay, yes, you know, you can draw, you can sort of draw a political science diagram saying this is already in the bag. Mm -hmm. But but the way it's already in the bag is that all those members who signed that letter and perhaps even more importantly, the five or six senators who are on the cusp have to continue to feel that the conditions are the same as they were when they signed the letter. Right. And so what, you know, APAC is trying to do with its with its 40 million dollars. And this is it's, a, it's actually it's a it's a great sort of teachable moment about how this works is they're, it's a great experiment. Yes. they're trying to change the sort of underlying political calculations. Right. They're not necessarily trying, although, I mean, and to be fair, there are probably a few members on each side who sort of genuinely have an open mind on the issues, which, um, you know, who genuinely sort of can't bring themselves around to the idea that there might not be a better deal out there and so actually do want to be convinced on the merits. But, yeah. but APAC is trying to move the curves in the political science diagram. Mm -hmm. And the way that APAC either succeeds or fails is that there's pushback from other forces. And political science analysis is sort of static. It's taking pictures of moments in time. But the thing that holds the curves where they are or doesn't hold the curves where they are is activism. So 
that's sort of what we're, you know, we're watching a fight over, over a curve in a, in a graph, if you will. Mm -hmm. No, and I, I, and so that's a fair point. In other words, the assumption that political scientists would make is that even if APAC is making this push, there's two ways in which I think political scientists would be skeptical about whether the push will work. The first is, as you say, it's the countervailing pressures factor that, you know, and it, it, that is the one thing I've seen, you know, in terms of the press coverage I've read since I came back, is that it's clear that the White House is gearing up uh, as much as it possibly can. Um, you know, first of all, the the president's home style, for lack of a way of putting it, in terms of schmoozing Congress, and also presumably getting their proxies out there as much as possible to push back against the APAC argument. But second, and I think this is where the, the sort of deep political science structural argument might be, is the notion that, in fact, maybe the Iran deal isn't quite as important to most of the American people uh, as APAC or the supporters of the Iran deal believe. Um, that uh, and, and that, therefore, even if APAC is pushing as hard as it possibly can on this, um, in the end, it's not going to be able to move much when it, in the way of an apathetic public that still, by the way, is extremely leery about military engagement in the Middle East. Well, actually, I think the structural point is a great, or sorry, that point about relative importance is a great way of getting you to the thing that is being fought over and tested here, which is that APAC is placing, and, and again, I want to say, like, you could diagram this out with other issues. There's nothing that's unique to APAC about this here. APAC is not uniquely good or bad or different from any other right. organized interest group. It's just, it's a fabulous example of, of the genre. Um, and yes, that was a subtweet of me saying, please don't take a clip out of this out of context and call me anti-Semitic. So let's just like to be clear about how anxiety provoking this topic can be. But um, but what APAC is betting on is that there is a swath of and by the way, not mass public, but informed voting and yeah. contributing public. Right. And APAC is betting that if it puts in enough resources and ratchets the temperature up high enough, it and its Republican partners who are working with their evangelical base can put enough pressure on a group of, of Democrats to say, yes, it is that important. It, it is that important to my constituents and therefore it is that important to me. Now, the so the long-term thing here that I think is going to be demonstrated is exactly what you said, which is that there is an assumption about how important a particular argument about the, the security of Israel is to American elites. And that argument is going to be disproved by the very way that Israel's friends have chosen to set up this fight, right? Mm -hmm. They did not have to have this fight and lose it. And they didn't have to be lost in these terms, but I agree with you. I, I think in the end, they're going to lose it. They're going to lose it in these terms. And it's going to be um, for people who care very strongly about Israel's security and the U.S.-Israel relationship across the political spectrum, um, this is going to end up having negative effects that are bigger than the Iran deal. Whoa. That's quite a statement. Um I, I hate to, okay, to go, to fall back again on the political science thing. I think the answer to that is, in some extent, a we will see sort of point, which is it partially depends upon how both APAC and separately from APAC, the Israeli political establishment reacts to the notion that 
assuming that this doesn't that the strategy doesn't work that the deal is actually implemented and let's face it it also fundamentally uh, pivots on who winds up being president come January 2017 um, but you're right that it might be a ref you know it, this entire year might be a reflective moment uh, in terms of of the Israeli American relationship and in some ways a a referendum on what has been a interesting strategy by Benjamin Netanyahu about how he wants to influence the American political, um, how he wants to influence the American body politic, um, which is you can say that, it, you know, you can argue that it, it will backfire, but it's an interesting strategy. And I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it'll work in the end, um, but uh, but it might have worked domestically for him. Well, I mean, my view is you could imagine a scenario where it works, quote unquote, domestically in the short term. In I mean, he did get reelected, which not people were not expecting at the time. That's, oh, so, no, so it, that's worked, what I mean. it worked great for him domestically. Yeah. Um, and you could even imagine a scenario where he ends up with a more sympathetic president. In fact, it's hard to imagine a scenario where he doesn't end up with a more exactly, sympathetic yes. president only because he ends up with a president that he hasn't personally insulted and burned yet, you know, no matter yeah. who it is, even if it's Bernie Sanders. Right. Um, but, but what you're doing is um, you, you know, every young member of Congress who hasn't gone through, who hasn't gone through a fight over Israel before um, every, every young member of Congress, every young, particularly Democrats who see the kind of rhetoric that's being slung around, who see, you know, some some mutual acquaintances of ours were testifying in front of various House committees in the last week and got called, got called stupid, got called anti-Semitic, you know, just really disgraceful treatment of um, intelligent American foreign affairs professionals. And you're going to have a whole generation of people who who are just sort of like, yeah, Israel, like they just burned us and just scorched us for no good reason from an American perspective. And so when you come back asking for something else in five or 10 years, you're not going to encounter the level of sympathy and understanding that you encounter in American politicians in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And so that's where mm -hmm. I think Bibi's strategy and APEC's willingness, you know, not just to go along with it, but frankly, to amp it up. Um, are, are really hurting hurting Israel's goals with respect to the U.S. in the long term, although I grant you in the long run, Bibi will no longer be in office, so he may not care. But but there is a, a long-term kind of negative consequence coming out of all this. That's possible, although I will I would close with this observation, which is to say that you might be correct, but, you know, particularly with respect to the Middle East, the other the other factor that we have to consider is events which is you could easily see scenarios whereby Israel suddenly does face a heightened security, um, uh, a heightened sense of insecurity. And that, you know, will cause, uh, you know, whatever sort of surface level of, of, um, of turbulence that has existed between the United States and Israel to be dismissed very quickly in, in return for a recognition of sort of common strategic interests. Um, so that, I think you, while I don't think you're necessarily wrong, I also think the wild card on this is what winds up happening in the Middle East over the next five to 10 years. And, and I am not even going to come close to making a prediction about that. Um, so that seems like but, a good moment to loop you back to my reserve currency question. And um, oh, okay, good. if, if the U S decides to blow up the Iran deal, 
and try to maintain control over um, outside investment in the Iranian economy by keeping anybody who does deals with Iran out of the banking system. And then China and India have no longer have any reason not to basically construct deals that, that avoid the banking system and thus the U.S. dollar. You know, how, how immediate and real and unhelpful factor is that? Um, yeah. uh, without getting into too much detail, um, there are a couple of key factors that would you need to answer that question. The first is whether or not the European Union would, would buy in to what the U.S. is doing. If the EU doesn't, um, then that would actually be pretty catastrophic for U.S. foreign policy. Um, there would probably be a short-term effect in terms of, of limiting the, the extent of, intervent, uh, of investment into Iran's economy, but it would probably be one of those steps that would cause, in some ways, the parallel would be China's um, embargo of rare earths on Japan about five years ago. Um, over the, fish, the, uh, the the arrest of the fishing boat captain, which is in the short term, that actually succeeded. Um, it caused Japan to return the fishing boat captain. It then set in motion a train of events that has eroded. Heather, are you okay? Yep, fine. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, it will then set, but that set, then set in motion a train of events that has badly eroded uh, China's control over the rare earths market. Um, which is not to say they still don't deploy a large market share, but a lot of private and public actors responded to that by making sure that they were not that vulnerable ever again. Um, so if the United States were to go that route, um, it might have some limited success in Iran. It will then cause a much more concerted effort among the BRICS economies uh, to create a parallel payment system that does not uh, need as much dependency on the U.S. financial markets. Okay. Actually, so, that, that's, a, that's a sort of helpful way of taking it into a specific step of something the BRICS would do. So, so that, yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually a, a that, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is Professor Dresner doing that sort of political economy thing. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we were going to talk a little bit about China, actually, and, and what's going on with China's stock market and what it all means for the rest of us. Um, yes. Uh, I, I don't think this has to be that long. Um, I haven't checked recently, but I believe the market is cratering again. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, I haven't checked while we were doing this blogging heads, but yeah. Yes. I mean, truthfully, the thing that I'm impressed by is not so much that the market is cratering. It's the fact that all of the myriad Chinese government steps actually managed to forestall the market from cratering for a couple of weeks. Uh, although these were these were steps that, you know, go way beyond uh, what we would see. Um, even in the United States in, in circa 2008, which is to say, you know, beyond just talking up the stock market, uh, there was a ban on large traders uh, selling various stocks. Uh, there was my favorite, which is particularly unique to China, was the notion that there was going to be an investigation of short sellers, because clearly that must be responsible for what's uh, you know going on in terms of the precipitous stock market fall, um, as well as the creation of... I don't want to say a Chinese version of TARP, but a sort of Chinese uh, sovereign wealth fund that was simply going to buy up um, falling stock prices as a way of uh, propping up the market. Um, all of these measures uh, did at least temporarily halt the decline in stock market prices, but now uh, they're falling again. Um, 
First of all, fundamentally, this should be of no surprise to anyone because the entire stock market bubble that we've seen from November on uh, made no actual economic sense uh, because it was occurring at the same time that the Chinese economy, the real economy, uh, was actually slowing down. Uh, so there was no reason why um, you should have seen such an elevation in stock market prices. And indeed, the only, you know, the obvious reason is that uh, essentially a lot of new money began to enter the stock market, uh, mostly at the urging of, among other things, the Chinese government. Um, so I think that the question going forward and the question that remains unanswered is whether or not uh, the continued volatility in China's stock market represents a fatal blow to uh, Xi Jinping's legitimacy as he continues to pursue sort of neoliberal economic reforms, which they've been trying to do uh, since the third plenum, which took place, I believe, in uh, November 2013. Um, and the answer to that is that I think it is a mild blow uh, to Xi Jinping's legitimacy, but I don't know if that necessarily matters all that much because he has actually managed to consolidate political power uh, to the point where, you know, short of short of something like open rebellion from various factions in the Chinese Communist Party, he's still going to be able to do what he wants to do. So two, two questions that I have um, been struggling with in my own mind and watched debates on, um, one of which is obviously at some level, it appears that the Chinese government views the problem here as a stability problem or a social oh, hell stability yeah. problem. It views it entirely as a stability right. problem. But how break down for me when you still have the vast majority of Chinese who, who are outside of this stock market bubble. So why, why is it such an enormous stability problem? You know, why should, why should, why do China's leaders care so much about it? I would say there's two reasons. Uh, the first is, is that while you're right, most of the, most of the Chinese population are outside of the stock market. There was a growing share of them that has become part of it. I think something like 15%. Um, of Chinese consumers. And furthermore, these would be the Chinese that actually, you know, have some assets, which means, uh, you know, they are, uh, you don't necessarily want them discontented. Um, because if for nothing else, what it will do, which it's going to continue to do, is accelerate the withdrawal of, of private Chinese capital from China uh, as it seeks other places where there are stronger property rights and a, strong, and a, a more stable rate of return. Uh, the second and far more important reason why I think this matters is that essentially the Chinese government and this Chinese leadership put its reputation on the line with the stock market. And this remains the step that I still don't completely understand. But they nevertheless did do this in that, you know, if you took a look at what, you know, official Chinese party organs have been saying since this bubble started last November, it's been the notion of you should absolutely totally invest in the Chinese stock market um, because that's a demonstration of how robust the Chinese economy um, and the Chinese nation is doing. And in some ways, the the. In some ways, you can argue that for, for state legitimacy in China, it's a function of two things at this point, or three things at this point. The first is the notion that it, it offers a, a promise for, you know, higher rates of economic growth. The second is, um, you know, the notion of Chinese nationalism. But the third is that in a world that seems increasingly chaotic and disordered, we, the Chinese government, can still make sure that order exists. Um, and... You know, weirdly, if you're going to make that claim, then suddenly stock market volatility uh, suddenly becomes one of those testing grounds. 
Um, I think it's a really stupid testing ground. Um, and in some ways, this is a battle that I could have told you that the, the Chinese government was not going to win, at least in the short term. But nonetheless, here we are. Uh, so as a result, um, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, the, the, the government can repress or, or censor a lot of things. It can't repress or censor stock market prices. Why not? Because uh, that would be even worse than what's going on now. Um, I mean, you know, look at this way. This is what's no, in, all, in all seriousness. It, it's it's I mean, why does why did Beijing allow the stock market to grow up as unmanaged as it has? Because I think it saw that politically as a good thing. Um, the notion that the stock market was booming was a way to show that, in fact, you could continue to pursue market reforms. And furthermore, a rising stock market could point to the ways in which state firms would be less reliant on Chinese development banks and presumably um, startups could find a new way of acquiring capital rather than just relying on state banks. Well, and also presumably that the people that you were luring into to run and invest in your stock market are exactly those Chinese who have maximal in interest or in experience with the Western form of, of um, unbridled um, unbridled financial capitalism, and that it's it's an interesting point that you can you can constrain Western political freedom. Sorry, you can constrain political freedoms so that they aren't as they appear in the West, and you can argue that you're doing that because you have your own system. But you couldn't. You you calculated that you couldn't get your own entrepreneurs to come back and play in a fake stock market, you had to let it be the real Wild West thing in order to right. draw them in. That's a, it's an interesting comparison. Right. And again, this has been a growing, this has been a Chinese problem for the last few years, which is you are seeing the, the people that actually have real amounts of capital, uh, they're not, you know, they're keeping one foot in the Chinese system. But on the other hand, they're also getting their money out uh, or getting a lot of money out. And I mean, I'm sure you've seen the stories about the degree to which, you know, Chinese plutocrats had, and are literally buying citizenship in other countries because they want an exit option. Yeah. So this is um, a little bit of, a, of an orthogonal turn of topic here, but it is, it is responsive to one of our viewers um, who wrote in with a plaint about the British political system. So okay. why on earth is Britain's conservative government so tying itself up in knots about whether Ai Weiwei gets a visa or not? Well, in some ways, this is of a piece with what Great Britain did with respect to the AIB, which is, I mean, they were in some ways the, the pivotal actor that sort of released the, the, the logjam of other European countries that decided they were going to join the AIB, which whatever the merits of it, it's clear that the, China, that the British thought of it as this is the, the market we want to you know, play in. Uh, we can't ignore China. Um, as near as I can figure out, David Cameron's government is, you know, believes that China is the future. And therefore, for lack of a way of putting it, appeasing the government, um, and I mean that in as neutral a way as I possibly can phrase it, um, is preferable to uh, taking a somewhat more principled stand on this. Right. I mean, actually, I'm, I'm also just reflecting the, the commentator wrote in and asked for relief from regarding the British labor leadership battle. So I think we'll give him relief by not discussing the British labor leadership battle. Um, While I know vast amounts about the Chinese, about the British labor leadership struggle, I will reluctantly accede to your request and not talk about it. <laughs> um, viewers, did his nose grow longer when he said that? Um <laughs> So last but not least, but sort of speaking of um, just general crankiness, um, 
which as we do, and, and I, I, will, I will sort of put myself out here as the curmudgeon of the week, um, because I published a piece this past week in uh, The New Republic about humanitarian intervention, in which I posited that the biggest threat to the idea that there was such a thing as useful, both morally and practically valid humanitarian intervention is not, in fact, its opponents, but its friends. Um, mm -hmm. And I was driven to do this by a, a sort of... Um, moan that George Packer published in the <laughs> New Yorker in the guise of a book review. Um, uh. And, you know, make and the point I wanted to make is that we both have catastrophically moral and practical and security failures in humanitarian intervention. First of all, the fact of the, the, the dissolution that's going on in Libya now Second, in our inability as an international community to figure out how to stop the bloodletting in, in Syria. Third, that what happened in Iraq was done under with people claiming it as a humanitarian intervention, even though, yes, Twitter, I'm well aware that it was not a humanitarian intervention. But at the same time, you have millions of people um, in Cote d'Ivoire in Bosnia and Kosovo, in Macedonia, in a number of other places in Africa, walking around saying, hey, I'm actually alive because someone intervened at a particular point in time. And hey, um, my country's political situation is actually getting better rather than worse. And so there is this counter argument. And if you don't both recognize that those folks are out there, number one, and number two, that the fact that you succeeded someplace makes it morally imperative to look at the lessons from where you failed instead of just being embarrassed to talk about where you failed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, then you, you are the ones doing the most damage to the idea that there's some, some utility in, in humanitarian intervention. So, um, so that was sort of my, that was my fun, my fun moment of um, just sort of sheer putting keys to keyboard and letting fly in the last week, because I think this is an, an issue that, that undergirds a lot of our domestic debate about, about Syria, but also, you know, as we go around yet again about the Iraq vote, as, you know, a president goes to Africa and you, you have, you know, this catastrophe unspooling in, in Libya, you have the frustration of what's going on in Southern Sudan and some other mm -hmm. places. So anyway, my little, uh, my little uh, fury of the week. Okay, so I will, uh, we, we got to get going, I believe, but uh, I will close with a few things. First of all, I recommend everyone read Heather's article, um, because if nothing else, Heather, if that is you exasperated, I want you exasperated more often, because um, that was a fine piece of prose. Uh, but the one thing that I was struck by, and I will push back, uh, not push back, but I, I want to ask you something, was is your, your point, one of the points you make is that the problems with domestic debates over humanitarian intervention is that we overpromise. Um, that advocates of opponents of TPP, you know, claim myriad problems that will occur if it, if it gets done, or for that matter, comprehensive immigration reform, talk about the various, you know, bad economic things that will happen to it. They're always overinflated. I get equally upset or somewhat, you know, when I see advocates in favor of open economic integration overpromise or oversell the benefits. So I'm not sure that's a problem that's going to go away on the peacekeeping front. So... Do you think that is a uniquely American problem or I mean, because I'm, I'm very open to the argument that it is in some ways a function of our of our nature. And it certainly yeah. is with with respect to humanitarian intervention. We just always think we can fix things. That's an interesting question. Um, 
you know, is, is over-promising be, a national trait, I guess I'm saying. Let me put it this way. I, it, I don't think over I think overpromising is just a function of politics, period. That, that's, that, on the one hand, that's, that's just the nature of the beast. What you might say is uniquely American about it with, with respect to intervention is that the overpromising inevitably says not just that we are going to stop the carnage and the violence or whatever and, and you know, actually make sure people stay alive, but that we are also going to inject liberal democratic values into country X. It's going to be Switzerland. Right, exactly. Or yes, yes, that you know, Afghanistan will be the Switzerland of Central Asia, or you know, Libya will be the uh, will be the Netherlands of uh, North Africa, or what have you. Um, that we tend to valorize the we we tend to valorize those values and also believe that those values genuinely have universal appeal. And even if they do, the, the thing that we genuinely overpromise is the notion that. Institution building will be really, really easy once uh, all the bad people are taken care of. Well, to try to draw several strands together um, as we as we close, um, possibly the reason that Americans are so prone to overpromising on humanitarian intervention is that the story we tell ourselves about our own democratic development is so sort of truncated and oversimplified and embarrassingly wrong. Um, and I'll just say here, um, and I'll fearlessly mispronounce his name, but I've just finished reading, um, Tennessee Coates book between the world and me. And, um, in terms of thinking about, I mean, in a, in a fun, you know, probably partly just to distract from the intense emotional discomfort I, as a, as a white person, um, experience reading it. Um, it is very interesting to think about how, the disconnect and the the storytelling that he identifies um, applies to our our actions internationally. So if we can't tell ourselves the truth of our own story about you know both how wonderful our democratic experiment is and has been and how deeply flawed it is and how long it took um, and you know how frankly we were able to do it because the rest of the world didn't really care how we governed ourselves as long as we left them alone. Um, as if we can't if we can't tell ourselves the truth about our own story, then we're very unlikely to be able to say to ourselves, you know what, um, Afghanistan is never going to be Switzerland, and it would still be worth getting rid of the Taliban, right? right? And, and okay, so I will. No, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to close with this thing, which is uh, he, This is a, a theme that that actually, and this ties back to our original point about Barack Obama, this is a theme that Barack Obama has gone to again and again, and it's something that in some ways has a more partisan divide now than I think existed before, but it's it's a theme that I actually like that Obama stresses, which is the notion that America is a flawed country and has a flawed history, but that what makes America exceptional is not the notion that God handed us these, you know, the Constitution, and, and therefore we've had a, a perfect system of government ever since then, but rather that the United States has a drive for a more perfect union, um, and that while it is still imperfect, uh, the country is strong enough to note its imperfections and at least try to address and and amend them. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think an appealing vision probably to progressives generally, but I think should be an appealing vision to, to Americans as a whole. Um, and I think it's one of the, the, the better themes that he's done, you know, he's, he's articulated during his time in office. And it's one that I think, unfortunately, is left invulnerable to occasional criticism from conservatives about how America, Obama doesn't believe in American exceptionalism. 
Yeah. Well, rather than get into another whole long discussion of American exceptionalism, which which I'm sorely tempted to, um, I will I will just note that in some ways you could summarize my my argument in the New Republic by saying that the kind of self examination that the, the the trope you just brought out calls for is one that's dramatically absent among among yeah. the friends of, um, of of strong and robust American intervention in the world, be it economic, be it military, be it, uh, be it cultural, political. So um, yes. the next time I see you, Dan, um, there will have been a Republican debate. There, Ooh, may, there may have been a Russian August surprise in Ukraine. Uh, um, what else? Will and hopefully, uh, well, the Red Sox, unfortunately, will be to continue to be irrelevant. So that's the most depressing. Right. The, and the Nationals hopefully will continue to be. Oh, but, um, but hey, we have Jonathan Papelbon now. So you can... Um, <laughs> You can find in your heart another small reason to be enthusiastic about the Nationals because Papelbon is here. Fair enough. I hope Drew Storen adjusts, and uh, I will talk to you next month. Great. Take care. Bye.